Hello everyone, welcome to the Wharton Impact Podcast hosted by the Wharton Social Impact Club. Together, we explore the intersection of business and meaningful impact. I am your host, Shorya Malhotra, and today we have Ms. Amy Wang, Managing Director and Head of Credit Strategies at Blue Earth Capital. Amy joined Blue Earth Capital in 2016 and has 14 years of industry experience. Prior to joining Blue Earth Capital, she worked as an Assistant Vice President for Deutsche Bank's Global Social Finance Group, where she led the group's clean energy and South and Southeast Asian financial services and social enterprise investing activities. Amy has worked across Asia, Africa, and Eastern Europe. Join us as we discuss Blue Earth's unique impact measurement approach, the role of private credit in impact investing in emerging markets, and what will be the most promising impact sectors and developing markets in the next 10 years. Hi, Amy. Welcome to this episode of the Water Impact Podcast. We're really excited to have you here. Hi, happy to be here. Can you start off by talking about your journey and why you chose investing in emerging markets as a career? And how does this relate to your interest in social impact? So I guess I'd start at the beginning. Um, so I am the child of Taiwanese immigrants and I grew up in a not great area part of New York City. So from a pretty early age, I saw what it meant to have access to things, access to education, to services, and really saw how that was critical to advancing just personal, individual and professional development. So that really kind of stuck with me. Um, and and my traditional you know path post-college was pretty for traditional jobs. I worked in banking and asset management, but that's that I was always involved philanthropically, um, given that core and focus to my heart. And while in while doing my day job, I started to become a bit frustrated because I saw some really great organizations, nonprofits, that is, start to just close up because donations dried up. Um, whereas on my day job, capital just continued to flow in. And sometimes these businesses weren't that good, but capital just continued to be raised. So to me, that said, there's a disconnect here and there is an opportunity. Um, And with that, I decided to pivot and actually um, attend Wharton. Um, I did the Wharton and and Lauder degree because I wanted to spend two years really researching what would it mean to be an impact investor? What would it mean to really blend financial targets with social impact goals? Um, And through there, I came out with the perspective that in order to really dramatically create systematic change and produce enduring legacy to some of the world's greatest challenges, you need to do so in a sustainable fashion. So nonprofits are great and um, there's a need for them for sure, but there's also a need for a blend of impact and investing, which led me to my current path, which is impact investing and emerging markets. And your question is really why emerging markets? Because I think that's where the need is greatest. So the vulnerable markets and emerging markets are exactly where there's the biggest demand for healthcare, agribusiness, uh, access to financial services, education. And with that, with the need being greatest, it's also the greatest market opportunity. So there's tremendous opportunity for attractive risk-adjusted financial returns, which would come together and to marry into the case for impact investing. 
That's absolutely wonderful to hear how you, you know, from your traditional roots and your perspective on impact, how you've made this pivot to impact investing. And so let's talk about Blue Earth Capital a little more. Can you explain to us what is Blue Earth Capital's investment philosophy and what is this relative value investing approach that Blue Earth Capital has? Sure. What is relative value? Uh, taking a step back, Blue Earth Capital is uh, the rebrand of what was something called PG Impact Investments. And that was the impact investment um, division, if you will, that had been incubated within Partners Group, a traditional asset manager, taking all of the lessons learned uh, and core DNA to then spin out a asset manager that would intentionally focus on impact. So with that in mind, Blue Earth leverages a lot of those traditional asset management uh, frameworks to provide a diversified yet customized uh, solution to any private market participant, those that are interested in positive social and environmental impact. This is how we look at management teams, at companies, as well as our investors. We try to bring in folks from private markets into impact, be their first entree into something which generates the positive impact as well as the financial return. So the way that we do this is by offering three different types of investment strategies. There is private credit. There is funds and co-investments, meaning we are a limited partner in other general partners investing in impact. And we also have a private equity strategy. It's a minority growth private equity strategy. And all three of these strategies are knit together in that they all have an intentional focus on impact. And what impact means for us is that products, um, companies, assets, what have you, they must have a product or a service that will directly, one, improve the life of an underserved population, or two, improve our global path towards a net zero uh, situation, which is improving the lives of these populations. So that's what we, what we seek to do. Now, how do we do it? Um, we do this by taking those three asset classes, which is a pretty wide footprint. Um, we take that footprint and we look at them as different tools to optimize for best relative value opportunities within any given time. So an example would be, you know, say we're looking at um, a, a Latin American business. Well, Latin America has tremendous growth opportunity and it has demonstrated tremendous growth over the last few years. Um, that said, the capital markets are thinner than perhaps some markets in the Americas or, or Asia. So there's a, a slightly muted um, track record of private equity exits. Therefore, many of these fast-growing businesses, the way that we would look to support them would be via credit investments here. So taking a look at what are the market dynamics, the impact dynamics, and which asset class makes most sense to be utilized to support the, the entrepreneur and, and the business. And with that in mind, we think that all of this couples together because impact investing itself is just is a strategy that's really resilient. It's just very defensive because aside from the positive impacts that it seeks to deliver, by its definition, it's really supporting those challenging societal problems. So impact investing tends to focus on the core you know, sectors that impact human experience, that's food, health, education. So even in challenged markets, you end up finding that we still need food security, you still need healthcare. Um, by accessing that, then thesis, then we're able to uh, ensure access to a defensible and counter-cyclical uh, type of investment. 
that's super helpful and i was actually very interested by how you define impact as improving the lives of underserved populations and i want to deep dive a bit also into this because we know that accurately measuring impact has been a big problem that the impact investing industry has been facing and blue earth capital actually says that it has a best in class impact and esg assessment methodology that consists of a variety of things such as the impact management project the un sdgs the iris metrics and even a logic model so i'd love to understand what exactly is this impact measurement approach and how does this differentiate blue earth capital from other impact investing funds especially in the emerging markets it's a good question and one that the entire industry is consistently facing because it's it is hard impact is multifaceted and with different asset classes there's different types of impact that you seek to achieve different sectors different scale different depth all of that so how does blue earth go about this we try to look at impact and financial outcomes as interlinked by saying that the target business needs to have an intrinsic product that where the dna is the financial success will depend on positive impact success as well and um, the the business model itself has to be interlinked so by doing that it does help us ensure that the way that we look at tracking and creating value for impact is intertwined is is very key but in terms of the process um blue earth has a, a fully interlinked and an embedded process where the investment process and impact are uh, tied at every step. <clears throat> so from sourcing, um, looking at prospective opportunities to due diligence, to holding, even exit, there are different uh, tools and processes that we undergo to ensure that there is the appropriate assessment of impact uh, attribution and additionality as well as ESG risk. I mean if you just think about how the bulk of our work is in emerging markets that's where the need is greatest. We already start by sourcing where that's where the need is greatest. So with every investment we will set together a a logic model, a theory of change to identify what is the key uh, activity that each business is undergoing to deliver a prospective uh, social output which then delivers a outcome in the future. By assessing what that theory of change is, making sure that it aligns with each fund's theory of change, we can then go and deep dive into each individual investment and take a, a almost like a, a codified um, tool where we manage that, map that activity against uh, a proprietarily created impact management tool where we worked with the impact management project that had come out of bridges and then IFC etc and now gin to uh, take a look at the the who the what the where the how much of impact and use that as a not just a scorecard but a a way for us to identify what are the key sticky areas of impact so we can demonstrate and set corrective action plans where needed or set uh, social covenants or goals where needed we also have an ESG framework where we have to go through an environmental and social management 
system assessment on every opportunity to look at the things from the downside. So social impact tends to be on the plus side. What can this business uh, end up doing for the positive? And ESG tends to, at least uh, on the debt side, for which I speak a bit more fluidly about, is from the, the risk perspective. So we take a holistic approach to cobble these together to create action plans for each individual prospective investee. Now, it's exactly the fact that we have so many different types of asset classes and sectors that our tools are set to be as usable and transferable as possible because ultimately it will be it will be customized on a case by case basis and we think that by demonstrating impact or sorry positive financial return this would also um, generate positive uh, social return in terms of something that we feel very uh, strongly about is when looking at the expected outputs or what are we actually delivering in social outcomes. Uh, we, we very much um, take a rather deep comb to the numbers that we're provided um, by our companies, our funds. And we want to be careful to say what actually is attributable to the Blue Earth intervention. Um, because if you look at all the annual reports by every other firm out there, you'll find these huge numbers. And if you add all those huge numbers up, you'd probably have a number that would have solved poverty once or twice over. But that's not true. <laughs> so what, what we try to do is at least, it's not super scientific, but it's it's an effort to start to outline what is our percentage of the cap structure, what is our percentage of the overall raise, and only look to... A report and then optimize our attributed uh, impact numbers. That's super helpful to understand and thank you for walking us through this entire step-by-step -step process. You mentioned that Blue Earth Capital has three asset classes. I'd like to deep dive into one of them. Now, you lead Blue Earth's initiatives on private credit. So can you talk about the role of private credit in impact investing versus other asset classes, particularly in emerging markets? No, sure. Um, there is a, a, a tremendous need for credit. It's The numbers are just really stark and staggering. On the demand side, if you look globally um, in emerging markets, the mid-market, the small-medium business market, they face about, about 30 million of them face a financing gap of over $4 trillion. Um, and in comparison, you've got, a, I think the latest report had cited that the last private credit strategy fundraise was maybe 58 some odd billion since 2006. So it's a humongous gap. And you've got lots of really strong, fast growing, small, medium businesses in these markets that are not able to access traditional bank financing. Um, and clearly need this type of capital to grow. Why do they need to grow? Uh, and why is this beneficial to them? It's because private credit is actually really quite beneficial to both sides. It's I'd like to think of it as somewhat of a win-win for both the company's uh, investors. From an investor perspective, emerging markets are oftentimes deemed more risky. So private credit can oftentimes mitigate a lot of these concerns and help transition other investors to get more comfortable with emerging markets because you're able to create customized covenants. You can have contractual terms. It also offers exits um, in a very structured fashion, which is important in emerging and frontier markets because capital markets are slim, exit opportunities are, are a bit more far and few between. 
Uh, and on the other side, for companies, um, private credit allows them to access non-dilutive funding that is oftentimes usually structured in a flexible way that can align with their growth and allows the repayments to be tied to their own actual cash flows. And specifically on the non-dilutive capital portion, this means that the entrepreneurs, the local management teams who are in control can stay in control of their business. And in a multi-dimensional, highly varied emerging market world, it's likely that the local management is best suited for navigating the nuanced challenges of running the day-to-day business there rather than you know, foreign private equity com- coming in. So I, from a private credit perspective and as, as a lender, we think there's a tremendous opportunity and room for, for growth in the market. But despite that, so there has been growth. Um, there has been pretty rapid growth in emerging market credit. It's still a really tiny percentage of overall credit markets. It's just, uh, it's under 2%. I think it might actually be only 1% of the share. So there's a lots of room to grow and there's a tremendous um, level of demand and supply mismatch um, across these various pockets. So that's why we're here. Got it. And it's really interesting to understand how private credit can actually help manage the the unique risks that emerging markets pose. I'd like to shift gears now to actually talk about some of these trends in emerging markets. Personally, I've worked in the impact space both in India and in Kenya. And while you would imagine that these markets are pretty similar because they are developing economies, I know for a fact that they have their own unique sets of opportunities and trends. So I'd love to understand from you, what are the different sectors in the markets that you invest in have ha- that have the highest financial and impact performance? And how do these sectors vary across the different emerging markets like Latin America, Africa, and let's say Asia? It's a good question. Um, maybe to your question about what's the highest financial or or impact return. I'd like to just clarify a little bit. And it's, well, we certainly want high uh, returns on all sides. For us, it's not just about trying to seek for that highest and maximized return. My belief is that we're really trying to optimize for the best long-term sustainable financial and impact performance. And we find that that to be the best way to ensure that there is enduring change and it's it's best for all parties. And to my earlier point about how uh, recession resilient the impact industry is, it also shows that you're optimizing for something, but it's also very risk adjusted. Um, but putting that aside, I mean, what do where are we most excited about basically, right? And we're most excited about three areas. One, healthcare. Healthcare remains a vital, vital need. Um, Healthcare spending is growing rapidly, particularly in emerging markets, you know, from cold chain storage to last mile distribution of vaccines, which we definitely saw in recent years. Um, There's an increased need for non-counterfeit pharmaceuticals, managing diabetes, all of this. We're exploring all of these key themes. There are some really interesting opportunities, ways to capitalize on uh, strong growth trends as well as to maximize. It's been a tough market out there. Maximize some market dislocation for uh, supporting really innovative and uh, and financially strong businesses um, in a catalytic fashion. Um, secondly, there is agribusiness or food security uh, more broadly. So Food prices have been already pushed up uh, by pandemic-induced labor shortages. 
there's ongoing conflicts, as we all know, in, in the world and inflation. I'm sure everyone is talking about uh, at Wharton, but food security is just top of the list. So even before all of that, the World Economic Forum had uh, estimated that the demand for food in 2050 to be, say, 60% higher than that of today, it's, it's just a tremendous need. Um, and it's very basic. You need to eat. So solutions to ensure that there is food security for those that need uh, it most, that are most vulnerable, are very much uh, areas that the team is, is focused on. And then lastly, um, it would it's a very unseasonably warm day in New York in February. So climate is also very top of mind. Climate issues disproportionately impact, as we all know, those that are most vulnerable. So we're seeing an increasing number of businesses that while some of their core models may be more social or they have a product uh, that impacts an underserved beneficiary, they're taking and they're aware of the, the, the climate points. So they're trying to embed green technologies into their operating businesses. This is going to help them manage their costs, ensure long-term sustainability, and also just help climate change. So we're very excited to support this type of phenomenon. And that's the, Those are the three big things that our team is working on. And that said, what's funny is you're right um, to your point. There are certainly lots of cultural differences and uh, geopolitical differences amongst every country and three regions. But these three uh, sectors are just so basic and they span different regional uh, demands that what you do find is there's a lot of lessons learned that you can cross over across any of the, the regions. But more specifically, I, I guess what we can say is um, the the capital markets in Latin America and Asia, well, Asia first, then, then Latin America are stronger or strong is too strong of a word. It's, they're perhaps a bit more um, advanced uh, than that of, of Africa. And in which case that may impact the type of financing opportunities and capital volume that we can uh, gear towards these regions. So as a rough estimate, we'd expect the portfolio to be, say, about 40% to Asia and the Americas each and the remaining 20% to Africa. But we'd expect that the African transactions actually take on more of a mezzanine type profile. Also, because going back to the point around blue earth relative value, how does one uh, when, how does one do good work in Africa? That's been a continent with lots of uh, lots of lessons learned and people getting their, their fingertips burned. Um, and one of the ways that we're trying to avoid our fingertips getting burned is by structuring exits and focusing on mezzanine rather than going in with straight uh, private equity. And that, those are lots of, uh, at least we're, we're testing out this thesis and hopefully it'll it'll play out. No, it's it's wonderful to hear that Blue Earth is focusing on such basic sectors like healthcare, food security, and climate. And it was very interesting that you mentioned that amongst these emerging markets, Asia sort of has a stronger framework of already existing capital markets. And just elaborating a little more on that, for example, we've seen that India, let's say, over the last two decades has actually emerged as a very attractive and robust investable market. So do you see any other markets that can actually mimic this sort of a success story in the coming decade or so? 
Absolutely. And I would just echo your comments around India. Something I always say about India is that you can you can land, you can throw a rock and you will hit a really cool business that is incredibly fast growing and very social just by the, the sheer economics and um, dynamics. That's that's what it is. Now, it's not easy to work there. There's lots of regulatory uh restrictions and guidelines, but it is a very strong ecosystem and framework whereby India is a, a pretty decent portion of our portfolio, particularly on, on the equity side. Um, so echo that India is a tremendous market that we're going to continue to support. To what I was saying earlier about, about Asia, another uh, region that we have a pretty bullish um, intentions towards is Indonesia, uh, another eye, I guess. So I mean, you can see Indonesia has been a really interesting case. Just about a decade ago, Indonesia was in a very different situation. They were considered probably one of the most um, vulnerable countries to a jump in U.S. interest rates. What's happened today? The U.S. interest rates are pretty high. <laughs> and while there are economic problems in many different places, Indonesia has remained fairly steady. In fact, last year, the, their GDP grew by over 5%. Um, their inflation also around 5%, which is in these days, not that bad. Um, it's just, it's got a lot going for it. It's resource rich. It's got a large and, and young population. Um, you know, there's one of the largest producers of nickel, which is very important for the thematics earlier about climate and EV batteries, a lot. But perhaps one of the most important things is that the political environment has been quite stable over the last uh, 10 years. There's been actually peaceful transfer of power over four times and the business um, and administration and market is is quite strong. So that's that's been really, um, really a wonderful place for us to focus on and to invest in. Clearly, there still are challenges to overcome, you know, the transition from a commodity exporting solely business to industrialization services and ensuring that there's just enough jobs to be created for a pretty young market. Uh, that's something that Indonesia still has to work through. And of course, in the 2024, there are um, elections coming up. So uh, everyone's going to watch out for that. But we've been really intrigued by the strong, um, what I've just mentioned, the geopolitical, kind of the financial, the commercial aspects. But still, it's a big country and there's, uh, it's, it's not a very wealthy country. So lots of opportunity for impact investors such as ourselves to, to come in and hopefully make a difference. Very, very interesting to hear about this insight on Indonesia. I'm sure our listeners will find this super, super useful. And lastly, Amy, now since this is a social impact-based podcast and given the nature of our listeners, I was wondering if you could talk about a moment in your career where you truly thought you were making this world a better place. Yeah, I think back. Um, there's been a few, but one of my favorites, I would say, was... Uh, when I was on a due diligence trip in India, um, I was looking at conducting diligence on a company that provides financial products and services to affordable private schools. Uh, you're from India, so you must know this. There are lots. There is over 250 million uh, school-aged children and the state of the government schools. So quality education, to say the least, can be difficult to access uh, in a very young, in that young and, and really dynamic economy. So what uh, we've found is that there's a really large and growing segment of affordable private schools. So these are low-cost schools which can address this gap of ed quality education. They cater mostly to more kind of tier two, tier three rural uh, communities, 
close to um, the villages and offer classes in in English while charging, say, anywhere between $5 to $25 a month in fees, which uh, I would say the Wharton, I don't know how much it costs right now, but maybe a little bit different than how much Wharton costs. So the company that um, we were looking at works with affordable private schools to give them any capital to advance improvements, um, such as renovations, um, things like buying equipment, you know, buses to transport kids in, computers, um, teacher certifications, trainings, that like. And I was actually visiting uh, one such school. It was um, in our tier two city, pretty far away from New Delhi. And the school had just opened up a new science lab. And um, as part of the diligence, I was, you know, visiting classrooms and seeing um, what it looked like. And I actually got to speak to a, a young girl. She was a middle schooler, I think. And she was telling me that uh, her dream was to become an engineer and that the new science lab would help her. And I was just like, wow, okay, I'm doing something okay. <laughs> I was doing something okay right now. This is, this is, I'm happy with my path. So. And on the other side, it also ended up being a pretty good transaction. <laughs> so. That sounds wonderful. You know, as someone, I've, I've volunteered a bit in multiple public schools in India and a lot of these affordable private schools as well. And this is very, very inspiring to hear, Amy. And I think just in terms of concluding here, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It was great interacting with you here today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wharton Impact Podcast. If you found this episode interesting, please give us your feedback on the Wharton Social Impact Club's Instagram page and spread the word about us on social media. For more content on the intersection of business and impact, please subscribe to our podcast. This is your host, Shaura Manhotra, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.